your, uh, maybe your electronic device that has your Bible on it. That's for those people in these first three rows here. You can't see anything, right? We're, we're still working on that, those lights, and we understand we've got, still got a little bit of lighting problems, so we're going to work on getting some more lights so you all can see as well. And we had so many to work with, so we worked with them the best we could, and we moved in, and still adjusting. But uh, hopefully either you're, you're, you're young or you have an electronic Bible, or you have just great eyes. So you can see some of them are in those, all those categories. So, um, well, as you, as you are turning there, uh, let me kind of tell you where we're going over the next four weeks. Um, this will be my last sermon in the book of Acts. You know, oh, man, we want to finish Acts. You're going to finish Acts. Because uh, this summer, um, other people are going to finish Acts. David Dupree, who was one of the founding elders here, one of the original teachers here, preachers at our church way back 13 and a half years, 14 years ago. Um, he's going to be coming two to three times during, a month during the summer. And uh, as we met with him on Friday morning, the elders, we thought the best thing we'd do is just continue the book of Acts, just finish Acts. Um, so that's what's going to happen. David, along with a few of our other elders, are going to be preaching um, throughout the summer until the Lord brings uh, the guy he's already chosen to uh, um, uh, take the position of the teaching pastor here, um, at least the, the, the majority teaching pastor. All right, All of our elders and pastors have the ability to teach. Um, but uh, So with that, uh, um, I also want to say next week, I'm keeping my promise, so we'll be looking at what the New Testament and the Old Testament, um, and I think sometimes people neglect that, have to say about what, is, what, is, what are tongues? What's this whole thing about tongues? And we've come across it four times in the book of Acts, right? And I promised you before I left, we would take a biblical view of what are tongues, what's their purpose, um, all those kind of things. So I encourage you to be here next week to, to, to uh, um, hear what God's Word has to say about that. And the last two weeks I'm here, I'm still praying about what to, to, to preach. It's a hard thing for me because normally I just, I know what I'm going to preach next week because I pick up where I left off, right? I'm done with verse 17, I'll pick up with verse 18. So that'll be a hard thing for me. I don't know how some pastors do it, that they jump around each week. Uh, they're probably just a little more spiritual and smarter than me. Maybe that's the thing, and they can figure out exactly what they need to be preaching. But I, um, it's a privilege for me to, to stand before you this morning and, and uh, continue this series, which will, which will be continued and completed by the grace of God, um, by others in the book of Acts, which we've entitled Missio Dei, the, the mission of God, and we see that that's uh, the, the theme of the book of Acts. And this morning we are going to be covering the last part of chapter 20, verses 17 through 38 in Acts 20. Um, and the, le- the, the title of the message this morning is A Model of Biblical Leadership. A Model of Biblical Leadership. So let's go to the Lord and ask him again to do what only he can do. Lord, uh, thank you for the privilege to gather to worship you as those that you have by your grace opened our heart to see our sin and our need for a savior and have enlightened us to see that you have sent our savior Jesus to live to die and to rise again that we might be forgiven and free and made right with you and be given the promise of eternal life not only here um, but also with you forever Lord, thank you for that. Lord, thank you for this time that we set aside each week to come together and this time and our, our time together to uh, take an extended look at your word. Uh, to, and we pray, Lord, that you would do again what only you can do. Lord, you would open our hearts and our minds to not only understand, but to apply your word in our lives. Lord, we ask you this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Well, most of us uh, have had uh, role models in our life that we've looked up to um, uh, throughout our life, and, and some of them have been famous people maybe you've looked up to as a role model. I think back when I was a little boy, I had a lot of famous athletes that I looked to as a role model for different reasons, and then, you know, got into it and figured out they weren't really that great of role models, so I changed my role models. Some of your role models may be somebody who's in your family or someone in your community, uh, a coach, a teacher, a leader, uh, and I know how I've had men in my own life and that I've looked to as role models, and I still do have men in my life that I look to for various reasons as role models for me. Uh, my dad has been and still is a role model to me for many reasons. My dad's not perfect. I know that. He knows that. Um, but in many ways, for being a faithful husband for over 50 years, to my mom, to being a dad who's loved me and my brothers well and still does, uh, to being a grandfather to his numerous grandkids, and yes, we carry the weight of that, I understand, um, but also as a friend, as a pastor for over 40 years, I, I admire my, fa my father. I I'm proud of my dad, and I'm glad I can call him a role model in many ways. Um, and, and, and I pray that because of me seeing those things in my dad and by the grace of God that many of those things will be true of me and I'll be a role model to my children as well. Well, John L. and I have intentionally had our children spend time with people who model certain godly characteristics in their life. They, they follow after the Lord Jesus Christ and we, we see that in them. And we've, 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 we've intentionally had our kids look at those people. We've talked about those people here and in other places. We've intentionally placed our kids with those people to spend time with those people so they see what it looks like in many ways that these people model certain characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just mom and dad because we're not perfect. And there's areas that we continue to grow in and, and, and need to be a better model to our kids. So we, we, we supplement our frailties with many of your strengths. And we appreciate that. We appreciate you pouring into our children and being models. Whether you knew we being a model or not, some of you know that we intentionally stuck them with you. And our kids know that as well, that there was some intentionality in that, and we're thankful for that. And I even think this morning about um, not only, like I said, in our church, but outside of our church, we wanted our kids to be around people in our community. Um, and I'm not trying to embarrass them, but Coach Brown is here, Ray Brown and his wife. And uh, when Anna Marie started running summer track, we were gifted with a godly man who loved the kids and loved our daughter and encouraged her and helped her work through things, not just on the track, but just in life. I still remember at the Nationals, and Coach, you'll remember this, in Virginia, and Anna Marie was running the finals for the 800 in her age group in, in the national championships in, in um, Virginia, and, and she was scared to death, and she had determined, I'm not running. I'm not running. We've driven all this way. No, you're going to run, right? And, and Coach Brown just lovingly turned about, took her aside and said, Anna Marie, the enemy's after you. The enemy doesn't want you to run. He wants you to be a failure. All you have to do is run, and no matter how well you do, you win because you ran. What great wisdom. Thank you, Coach. He was a model for our daughter. He was a model for me as a dad. I wanted her to win the thing, you know, and, and like coming first. And, uh, um, uh, and he, he, he looked beyond that and beyond the emotion of a father, but as a godly coach and poured in and invested and modeled to my daughter. And she's never forgotten that. She just runs, she wins. 
If we just go, we win, right? Many things that people have modeled for my family, for me, and, 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 and the Bible actually calls us, this is a biblical thing, to look at models, to look at role models, um, so that we can grow in our relationship with Christ, so we can be better, so that we can be better leaders ourselves. And Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and the first, his first um, letter, this is interesting because he's going to be with the elders here at Ephesus. Um, and when he was in Ephesus, he wrote his first letter to the church at Corinth. So listen to what Paul says to them in 11.1. He says, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Some translators can say, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul wasn't saying, look to me in and of myself. But when I follow Christ, and and I'm following Christ, and I'm exemplifying exemplifying Christ-like characters, follow my example. And, And we should not hesitate to say that. Not follow me, but follow me as I follow Christ. Yes, sir, we, everybody understands we're not perfect. But there's areas that they should be able to look at and say, hey, that's Christ-like. And, and we're called to do that. And this morning in our passage of Scripture, we will see Paul as a model of biblical leadership. In a sense, he, he, you'll see this. He's actually calling them to follow me as I follow Christ. And if you think you're not a leader, think again. You are, are a leader. All of us lead in some capacity. And we could either be good leaders godly leaders who can say follow me as I follow Christ or we can be poor leaders but we're all leaders so this passage does have to say something to all of us this morning and my prayer is that the Lord would use his word this morning to grow all of us as leaders so that his mission of rescuing people from sin can be more effective here with our own local church and our own local community and around the world before we dive in here to Acts 20, 17 through 38, uh, let me acknowledge that this passage of Scripture is even more personal to me than any time in my life before this point. It's commonly known as the Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders and the church of Ephesus. And so just to let you know, I need you to pray for me because this is going to be hard. In the province of God... This is going to be my last sermon in Acts. And uh, I never dreamed of that. You know me. I, I, I don't, I mean, I plan, but I never know how long it's going to take me to preach through a book. And here we are in Acts 20 in Paul's farewell address. And I don't know, sir, this is my farewell address to uh, Grace Bible Church. I'll have a few more times to preach, but there's some things in here that hit home for me, and my prayers will hit home for you, and God will be glorified. In all this. So let's, let's look at this passage together. And as we study down through this passage, we're going to see many characteristics of biblical leadership. And we're going to see some biblical exhortations to lead biblically to the glory of God. And now, again, before we look at these particular verses, let's look at uh, where we are in, this, in the book of Acts and in the fulfilling of the mission of God. Um, again, the beginning of Acts, we have the outline of the book of Acts. And that's Acts 1.8. And hopefully we all know that by now. If you've been here for two or three Sundays, if this is my 40th message in the book of Acts, that means I probably had about 20 left. I'm kidding. Maybe 12. Um, but the 40th message in, in the book of Acts, you've been here a few times, you, you know that we keep reminding ourselves of the outline of the book of Acts because if you don't understand that, you miss what's being taught in Acts. You, we misinterpret, we misunderstand what God is trying to say through Luke to us. So in, in Acts 1.8, he... Jesus gave this charge, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, 
Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth or to the ends of the earth. So we, we've seen this happen. We've seen Paul start, or not Paul, but God start, obviously there in Acts 2 in, 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 in Jerusalem. And then it goes to, to Judea and then to Samaria. And now we're at that part where he's taken it to the ends of the earth. Um, and last week we were reminded in, in verses 1 through 17 that Paul passionately and persistently pursued the mission that God had given him to take this message to the world. And Paul is finishing up here his third missionary journey and he's heading back to Jerusalem. Now you know I don't believe in luck. I believe in the providence of God. I think luck is not biblical because then God is not sovereign and he's not worth worshiping. Right? There's not luck. God is thankfully in control of all things. He either causes or allows all things to happen for his glory. Now, we have a hard time with that because we like to be in control, right? Let's be honest. That's why we have a hard time with God's sovereignty, not because the Bible teaches it, because our own flesh says, I don't like that. I want to be the boss. But in the province of God, Jared just read from 2 Corinthians um, chapter 7 and 8. Now, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians when he was at Ephesus, for the three years he was there. And then on his third missionary journey, when he's north, he's, he's heading back around and he's, he's, he's north of Corinth, all right? And he writes 2 Corinthians, which he, Jared just read out of. And he's coming around, he's taking a collection from the believers from all these churches that he had planted to take back to the church of Jerusalem who'd been going through a severe famine. And he writes to second, in 2 Corinthians to the church of Corinth. And he says, I'm coming to get the collection. Be generous like the churches of Macedonia. We just saw that. So that's what he's doing. He's on his third missionary journey. He's taking this collection. He's encouraging the saints. And, and he's, now he's coming back around um, through this third missionary journey. And uh, this, in a sense, is Paul's last opportunity to minister as a free man. Because once you'll see, and we get in chapter 21, he goes back to Jerusalem. And guess what happened? They arrest him in the temple. And from that time on, Paul the rest of the book of Acts is in captivity physically. Now we all know he's not in captivity spiritually. He's free because he knows the Lord Jesus Christ. The burden of his sin has been lifted. It's been forgiven. But from this time on, middle of chapter 21, he'll be a physically uh, bound man. Um, so let's pick up here where we left him last week in verse 17 on his third missionary journey, coming back to Jerusalem with the gift to help the saints in Jerusalem. Look at verse 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So let's, let's, as we look at this, I'm going to go ahead and bring this map up again, if you will. There we go. All right, so as I mentioned, he's on his third missionary journey. There's my pointer, okay. And he's come back here. He's come back around picking up the gifts. He'd come back down here, and now he's at Miletus. And he, and he calls, it's just south there of Ephesus, he calls the Ephesian elders to come before he makes his trip back to Jerusalem. Well, he'll be imprisoned um, and then makes his way ultimately to Rome by the end of the book. But you see here he's in Miletus, south of Ephesus, and he calls for them. I don't know how he called for them. Obviously, it wasn't on a cell phone. He sent somebody, and they go and they get the, 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 the elders at Ephesus, and he calls them to himself. And I want us to take just a few minutes, and, and the reason I want to do this is because I know many of us come from different church backgrounds where there's different leadership models um, in different churches. And here at Grace Bible Church, our model is we have a plurality of elders, multiple elders. I'm one of those. And we have deacons. Uh, who, who serve in leadership roles as well. That's the model that we see in the New Testament. And many of you maybe came from different models than that. But I want us to take just a few minutes because this is one of the key passages in understanding what the New Testament teaches about elders. 
All right, so it says he calls these elders to him in Miletus. And the word there, and, and bear with me, I'll, I'll bring it all together, but the word there for elders is presbyteros. And it's where the Presbyterian church gets their name. And they're elder-led. That's their, 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 their leadership structures. They have elders uh, that lead their congregations in the Presbyterian church. That's where they take this, that's where they call themselves Presbyterians. But the word elders here is presbyteros. So who are these men called elders that Paul sends to Ephesus to meet with him at Miletus. To help us answer this question, we need to look further down in our passage. So now look with me at verse 28. All right, look at verse 28 with me there. It says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now I want you to notice the word overseers there um, in, in your... Um, in, in your Bible, in your translation, it may even say bishops, and that word is episkopos. Uh, this word, the word, the, the, the episcopal church gets its name from. All right, the word overseers, episkopos. Now, notice the word shepherd. It's 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 the word word from the root word poumen. All right, it means to shepherd or to pastor. All right, so remember that Paul is addressing who the elders from Ephesus. And therefore, as he, if you look at this, he's talking about the same men. He calls them elders, he calls them overseers, and he calls those men to shepherd the church among them. So you see that in this passage, those three words are synonymous. It's speaking about the same group of men, not different men, but the same group of men. He's addressing them. And he says, be overseers, shepherd. All right? So, so we, we see that this, these three terms describe the same group of men. Presbyteros, episkopos, puumen, or elders, overseers, and shepherds. Uh, now, so let me briefly mention three passages where the, the, this, the, these terms are used other places in the New Testament. You can write this down if you're taking notes. The word overseer, episkopos, is mentioned in 1 Timothy 3.1 where we have this list of qualifications for the overseers. And then in, in 1 Timothy 5, 19, speaking of the same group of men, he, he uses the word elder, presbyteros, 1 Timothy 5, 19. And then he uses the word shepherd or pastor, poumen, and it's in the Greek, Ephesians 4, 11. He's called some to be apostles, and he says pastor teachers. All right, and it's the same word there. So these three terms are used synonymously throughout the New Testament. So let's briefly look at a few other passages in the New Testament that support this truth. And now I'm taking, my, I'm taking time to do this because 20 years ago when I really began to study this and I began to study what the New Testament had to say about this, and please don't hear me saying that if your church had a different leadership structure, they're going to hell. I'm not saying that. But I really want to know what the Bible had to say about leadership. And as I began to study just the passages of Scripture that spoke of this, I discovered that I felt it was very clear about the structure of leadership in the local church. I mean, you couldn't miss it. So I want to help you all not miss it. How's that? And at the end of this, you may say, you're crazy. But you'll have to prove me from Scripture. I'm crazy, all right? And I might be. All right, so let me look at, look at, we look at a couple other passages here. Look, at, look with me at Titus 1, 5 through 7, all right? So, so for this reason, I left you in Crete that you, would, you should set in order what remains and appoint, listen, elders, it's the word presbyteros, in every city as I directed you. For the overseer, he's speaking of the same group of men. The overseer, episcopos, must be above reproach of God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. 
This is the, the qualification of the elders, which he also calls what? Overseers or presbyteros, same group of men. Now, no, no, notice there that, that they're used interchangeably. Now look with me at 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, I exhort the elders, presbyteros, among you as your fellow elder, and that's also presbyteros, uh, and witness of the suffering of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is, in, is to be revealed, shepherd... It's the word pluman, or it can be translated pastor, the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. So we here see here the word shepherd or pastor and elder are referring to the same people. Again, we see the synonymous nature of these terms in the New Net Testament. An elder, listen, an elder is an overseer, an elder is a pastor, an overseer is an elder. An overseer is a pastor. A pastor is an overseer. A pastor is an elder. Do you get it? I hope we, I'm just emphasizing as much as I can. You can't be an overseer and not be a pastor. You can't be an overseer and not be an elder. You can't be an elder and not an overseer and not a pastor. They're synonymous. It means the same thing. So why in the world does the Lord in the New Testament use all three of these terms? Why wouldn't he just use one so it wouldn't be confusing? Well, I think there's a reason, and let me share that with you. The term elder stresses the dignity and position of this ministry in the church. Uh, the term overseer stresses the function and the work of an elder. And the term shepherd or pastor stresses the heart and the attitude in which they carry out the position and function. So it's, it, it's hard to, to wrap around, okay, the elder, what's that mean? Well, okay, they're also overseers. Oh, that helps us. They're also pastors. That helps us too. We understand what they're supposed to be doing. The character and the heart and the responsibilities they're supposed to have. But it's all referring to the same people. And I also want to mention to you, if you look there, that Paul meets with the elders, plural, from the church of Ephesus. Elders, plural. Other places in, in, in Acts, we see that he, he appointed elders in every church. We saw in Titus, he says, as I've appointed elders, plural, in every church, just as I've instructed, he says. Elders, plural. The New Testament knows nothing of a single pastor slash elder model of leadership in the local church. You won't find it. It's plurality of elders. There's more than one. Now, all of this must be kept in proper biblical perspective, and this will help us keep it in proper biblical perspective. 1 Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd, Poeman, appears, or pastor, the chief pastor appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. We must keep this truth at the forefront of our minds. Jesus alone is the chief shepherd, and every other shepherd is an under-shepherd. They serve under the direction and the leading of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, even though Paul is speaking specifically to elders here from Ephesus, the message he shares with them is meant to be taken back to the entire church. So you're thinking, man, this is a great, where, where's the elders at? Have them all come and sit on the front row. This is for them this morning, right? No, it's for all of us. It's also one of those things, it's interesting how people um, want to hold the elders, to, they should, to, to their qualifications as found in 1 Timothy and Titus, but they don't want to hold themselves to the same qualifications that are mentioned all throughout the New Testament. They're just not in one list. We're all exhorted to, to have those same qualifications, those same characteristics in our own lives, not just the elders. So this passage, yes, it's, it's, he's speaking to the elders at Ephesus, but he's also speaking to all of us, isn't he? Let's be honest, so you, can't, you can't exit 
All right, Tim, lock the doors. Make sure they don't run out, all right? All right, so, but this is for all of us. So I encourage you um, to, to listen just as intently uh, as the elders of our church and myself as to what Paul has to teach us this morning. Uh, now, now we, we know a little bit about these men, all right? Obviously, God calls, or Paul calls to meet with him. So let's look, look at what happens in this meeting. This is one of those meetings in Scripture that I wish I was a fly on the wall. I wish I could have been there and, and, and have heard this in first person and see the way that Paul interacted with this men, because it, with these men, as, as, you work, as we work down through you here, you see this is a serious and somber meeting that he has with them. Um, and I just wish that one of those times I could be there. Uh, but the, 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 the passage kind of breaks itself. If you're a note taker and you like outlines, I'll go ahead and give you the big one, all right? Uh, the first, verses 18 through 27, we see the vindication of Paul. Um, uh, and then the, verses 28 through 31, we see the exhortation by Paul. And in verses 32 to 35, we see the commendation by Paul. So let's look at first this, this section of verses 18 to 27, the, the vindication of Paul. Look at verse 18 with me. And when they had come to him, and he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. Paul's getting ready to lay out some facts about how he ministered to them for three years in Ephesus. He stayed longer in Ephesus than any other place. A little bit over three years. So he's going to lay out some facts about what happened and how he went about ministry with them. And as we read these verses, and I think sometimes you read these verses and don't understand the context, you might think that Paul is full of himself. He's just bragging about himself. I mean, come on, Paul, let your mom do that. Right? Not yourself. It's when we read down through this, what kind of we, we may think. But that's not what he's doing at all. We've we got to understand that false teachers and enemies of the gospel were going after Paul wherever he had been and telling those churches that Paul's a fraud. He's only in it for the money. You can't trust him. His character's wrong. He, he, he's in it for himself. So, so Paul almost, he, doesn't, he actually does the church of Corinth later on. He's almost, he says, I, I'm speaking as if I'm mad that, that I'm defending myself. But I, you know how I've been. You, just look, you, you know the truth. So he, in a sense, he's vindicating himself and reminding the elders Ephesus of, of the truth of how he did minister among them for three years. They knew better to believe these lies is what he was saying. You all know better. Just look. Was I perfect? No, but look how I ministered. So that's what he's doing here. So when we look, read these verses, don't think that Paul's full of himself. So in these, four, in these verses, we're going to see four key characteristics in Paul's life and ministry to the church of Ephesus that should be true of all biblical leaders. The first one is love. Look at verse 19 with me. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. He loved these people. And he ministered to them out of an overflow of his heart. I can relate with Paul here. You see, the, the, with, with, with tears, with humility and, and trials, I, I can relate with him. You see, I, I love the people at Grace Bible Church. All of them. All of them have ever been a part of Grace Bible Church I love. Dearly. And I've sought by the grace of God to serve you with all humility and with tears. Now you all know that part. And with trials. Now I've not loved you perfectly. I understand that. But I have loved you. And I do love you truly. Love should be the motivating, defining truth of all of us as we lead. And you see that from Paul. 
The second characteristic in Paul's life and ministry, the church of Ephesus, is truth. Look at verses 20 through 21. First, look at verse 20 with me. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Paul held nothing back. He didn't dodge the tough stuff because he knew that all of God's word was profitable. He would write later to Timothy that the word of God is profitable. Profitable. For all things, in all things. So he knew it was profitable for the people, so he taught it all. He did it publicly and privately. What he said from the pulpit, in a sense, or in a bigger group, he said it privately, one-on-one, in smaller groups. He didn't change what he believed and what he taught from God's word based upon who he was speaking to. He spoke the same truth, even the tough stuff. And, that, and what was central to Paul's teaching? Look at verse 21. Solemnly testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This was central to everything that Paul taught. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God, what is that? The word to repent means to change. It was a military term meant for, to change direction. You're going this way, you make an about face, and you turn and you go the other way. It has to do with a change of mind and a change that leads to a change of direction. And he says, I always preached, I was faithful as I preached everything, even the tough stuff, to make sure I emphasize this, repentance toward God, because the Bible says this, we've all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. We're all going our own way. In Romans 3, it says no one seeks God. We're all going after our own way. We're heading the wrong direction, away from God. That's how we're born, and we live that out. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that the Scripture is true about that. And he says there must be a repentance toward God. There must be a change of thought that leads to a change of action when it comes to God and who he is. His holiness, his justice, his love, his grace. We must change from serving ourselves and turn and see the true God for who he is. And leave ourselves behind. No longer trusting in ourselves. And then the next part is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we repent of that. We turn from trusting ourselves. Turn from walking away from God. And we turn... And we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on our behalf. We transfer our trust from God, from ourselves, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul said, I never failed to do this. Why would he never fail to do this? Because that's the theme of the Bible. The Bible is about God rescuing people from their sin. That's the theme of the Bible. I heard this once said, I've said it before, that you could explain the Bible in three sentences. God made it, man messed it up, God fixed it. And I'm so glad he did, and we didn't. If he left it up to us, we'd all still be heading this way, the wrong way. But that's the theme of the Bible, so he couldn't miss it. Every passage he came to would either talk specifically about God redeeming people, rescuing people, or he would talk in general about what was going to happen. So that's what he did. And my commitment has always been to teach the truth of God's word, So that we would know to repent and place our faith in Jesus Christ. That's what I've been trying to do for 13 and a half years. Again, not perfectly. And because I do consecutive exposition, what in the world does that mean? To expo- exposition, we'd really do an expository preaching. Exposition means to explain the word of God, right? 
Alright? We do it consecutively. We go through books of the Bible verse by verse. I've never skipped a verse. I know that if I skipped a verse, I would be lynched on the spot. Alright? They would string me up. Because we've made that a priority. Because that's how we understand. We don't skip this tough stuff. We just go and we deal with what's there. And, and, And I've done that by the grace of God. And and, so I, and, and, and because of that, I've not been able to shrink from declaring to you anything that's profitable. Uh, th- this is the way that I teach, and the pre- w- this is why I teach and preach the way I do. It holds me accountable to this characteristic of biblical leadership, to teach and preach the truth. And I've stressed over and over again, repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because... This is, the tr- this is the truth. It's what the scripture teaches. And it's our only hope. It's our only hope. There's no other way to be made right with God except repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way to be made right with God. Any other way is not what the Bible teaches. So we have to teach it that, that way. So we see that this, this characteristic of leadership of truth, love, and now truth. Now look with me the third characteristic in Paul's life and ministry in the church uh, to the church as, at Ephesus. Um, and that one is selflessness. Selflessness. Let's read verses 22 through 25. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, Will, uh, will no longer see my face. Paul was not thinking about his own life. It was never Paul's deal. Did he struggle with selfishness? I'm sure he did. But what we see in Paul's life is this consistently, consistency of selflessness. He was concerned about the glory of God and his gospel and the salvation of those who needed to hear the gospel. Notice that he calls it the gospel of the grace of God. Do you realize that repentance toward God And faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the same thing as the gospel of grace. Look how gracious this is. That God would know and that God would plan that those, all of us, that turn and run from him, all right, we've all sinned. Listen, that God would make this way that he only could get the glory. We don't turn by our own power. We don't turn because we want to because the Bible says we don't want to turn. But God does what he, like he did with Lydia in Acts 16. He opened her heart to the gospel. He, he woke her up. It was a work of God. And she turned and she trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Did she work to get her salvation? Did she do something? Some, some act of contrition? Some act of, of, of work or, or, or earning God's favor? No. It was solely by the grace of God that he sent his son. And he paid the price that she needed to pay. That's grace. That way only God gets the glory. God, that way, gets the credit. We don't. It's the gospel of the grace of God. And Paul was concerned about that above all else. He's saddened that he may not see the face of these people again. But because he loves them and others, he must go on fulfilling God's call in his life. He must move on. He must go to Jerusalem. That's where God's called him to go. Not knowing exactly what awaits him. Now he did uh, later, coming back through Rome, he actually did um, get to come back to uh, get, uh, see some of the uh, people of Ephesus again. 
Um, he, he wasn't sure. He didn't think he was going to, but he did later on in his life. You see, Paul is living out what he would later write to the church of Philippi. And many of you all probably can recite this with me. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important yourself. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Paul here is modeling what he was teaching. He was living out selflessness. And this selflessness should be a characteristic of all of us who lead for the glory of God. After all, Jesus exemplified this in giving his own life for us, didn't he? Selflessness. Jesus didn't go to the cross for what he got out of it. He went for what others got out of it. Listen to this. God, got a, God the Father got a family. The Spirit got a temple. And we got salvation. What did Jesus get out of it? Pain, death, the Father turning his face away for a moment in time. The greatest pain he could ever and would ever suffer in his, in his entire existence for all eternity. That's what he got out of it. He was completely selfless. And those who have been redeemed by that wonderful, loving God, the Lord Jesus Christ, that should be exemplified in our life as well. It should be a characteristic of selflessness. And this, by the grace of God, is what I've strived to do here at Grace. And what I continue to strive for is selflessness. Have I perfectly done that? No, I've been selfish sometimes. I'm, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I don't have to be honest with you. You know that. But I've tried to be selfless. I've tried to put the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel and you before my own needs. Well, let's look here at the fourth characteristic in Paul's life and ministry of the church of Ephesus. A clear conscience. Look at verses 26 and 27. Therefore, I testify you to this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose or the whole counsel of God. As we saw in verse 20, Paul taught that the whole, he taught the whole purpose of God. He didn't pick and choose what he liked most, but he taught the whole truth. Therefore, he could say, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Now, all men is not every single person in the world. He didn't preach to every single person in the world, did he? And he's talking about specifically who? To the people of Ephesus. That's who he's speaking about. That he, he's, he, he knows that for three years, that's what he did. And he can say in, with a clear conscience, their blood's not on my hands. They're, 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 they're hearing the gospel's not on my hands. They heard it. I faithfully did that. If he would have held back, certain aspects of the person and work of God like justice and wrath and hell, etc., which is popular to do, isn't it? People don't like to hear those things, but they're true. They're part of the scripture. In fact, they're what makes the gospel so good. When we understand the bad, we understand the good even better. If he held any of those things back, he could not have made that statement. He could not have a clear conscience. If he would have held those things back. If he would not have warned them of the wrath to come. If he would not have warned them of the justice of God. This is resting on their sin because of the rebellion against him. That they needed to turn and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. If he wouldn't have talked about that. He couldn't have said. I'm innocent of the blood of all people. Here. He had a clear conscience. Oh that we could all say this as we lead. That we can have a clear conscience. That, that, that we're not guilty of the blood. or That we're innocent of the blood of the people God has called us to lead. So, again, I've not been perfect as your teaching pastor and, and, and elder in any way, but I can say with a clear conscience and by the grace of God, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. If you've been here for any length of time, for the 13 and a half years I've been here, 
You know that's true. I have not. Now, it hasn't always been easy. And I've had to preach some very difficult things because it's in the Scripture and things I struggle with and things that convict me and things that, man, I don't understand that and that's hard. I haven't done it publicly. I haven't done it privately. And sometimes there's hard things I've had to say. It's because I love you. And I've had hard things said to me as well because people love me. And then they even counseled me from the Word of God, the tough things. I'm so glad that that's, we can say that. And by God's grace, may we all continue to grow in having a clear conscience and all these biblical leadership characteristics of love and truth and selflessness and, and a clear conscience. So we've seen Paul's vindication. He's saying, you know me. You, you've seen how I've ministered before you. Everyone's a perfect no, but, but these things are true. What all these false teachers are saying is just not true. I did it with this heart and with these actions. So that's his, that's his vindication. Let's see in verses 28 through 31, the exhortation of Paul. Look at verse 28 with me. Be on guard for yourselves and for, the whole, for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He first exhorts these elders to be on guard for yourselves. Now let me go ahead and say, I'll direct this to our elders here um, this morning. In order to minister to others, you must first be growing yourselves. Guys, it's a, hard, it's a hard and heavy call. And if you're not linked up with the Lord Jesus Christ and growing, you will not be able to shepherd this body. I know. I've been doing it for 30, 13 and a half years with other elders with, with me and many of you with me. In order to lead, you must lead by the Lord. You must be led by the Lord Jesus Christ on a daily basis through his word and through prayer. Living a life that's in constant dependence upon him. That must be a hallmark of your life. To guard yourselves. Be on guard for yourselves, guys. People of grace, those who aren't serving as an elder at this time, let me exhort you. Pray for your elders. In fact, we're, we're, we're commanded that in, in, in chapter 13 of Hebrews. To pray for your elders. You may not always agree with the elders. You might always agree with the decisions they make. But pray for them. Daily, pray for them. By name. Pray for Greg and Tyler and Tim and Steve and Jared and whoever else the Lord might call here to serve as one of the elders. Pray for them daily. Put that on your prayer list. Then follow their example of seeking Jesus through his word and prayer, living a life of constant dependence on him. Well, not only does Paul exhort the, the, the elders to be on guard for themselves... He says, also, be on guard for the flock. Why? First, because the Holy Spirit had appointed them to the ministry to shepherd them. Look at that again in verse 28. He says, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And if you go to 1 Timothy, being an overseer is a call. It's not something you, 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 you become. It's something you're called to. God calls men to be elders, pastors, shepherds, bishops, all those words of synonymous New Testament. He calls them. And he's called them to that because they must be called. So he gives them this charge. Notice also that God has purchased these people with his own blood. They are precious to God and therefore they are to be guarded by his appointed under shepherds. They're precious to God. And one of the ways that God guards his, shepherd, his sheep are by his under shepherds. Now Paul stresses why they should guard the flock. Look at verses 29 and 30. 
I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And then among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. There's going to be attacks, guys. There's going to be attacks on this body. There have been in the past. Thankfully, they haven't been big. And the Lord, by His grace, has, has, has quieted those. But there will be. It's not if, it, there will be attacks from people from the outside that try to bring in things that are not true and try to attack our body. Like books that aren't biblical. That can happen. Just have to be a person that shows up. Things that are out there in Christian bookstores that people are promoting is biblical, right? We've got to protect. We've got to guard the flock from that. Also, listen, from among yourselves, it says, inside. Thankfully, this has not happened here at Grace. And my prayer is it will not happen ever. That we ever would have an elder that goes rogue. That, that departs from the truth of the gospel of grace of God. But it can happen. And he's warning them about this. So pray for your elders. Pray for the elders that are to come. That that doesn't ever happen. So he, he warns me, he says, this is why you need to guard yourselves and guard the flock because there's people after the flock. There's people after the sheep. Let me say this, there's especially people after the sheep who are hurting, who feel alone. What does it say about the devil? It says he seeks, right, he, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. When you watch National Geographic or the Animal Chat Channel and you see a lion, especially the, man, the male lion, big mane, stuff like that. Who does he go after? The strongest antelope? Nope. The weak one that's separated from everybody else. In fact, he sends his wife after it. Alright? And she kills it and he comes and eats it all. And that's how the devil is. He likes to get the people who are weak, who are separated, who are hurting. We've got to protect those people. Because that's who the false teachers go after too. That's who when the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons come to the door, that's who they're looking for. Who's, when they come, most of the time it's during the day. Who's at home during the day? Not always, but most of the time, people who are weak and sick and hurting. We've got to protect our people from those people. Well, Paul then reminds him how he guarded them. Look at verse 31. It says, therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. He's, he's saying that, that I did this in a sense. I, 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 I protected, I guarded you. And he did it through, in love through teaching and warning. He admonished them through the truth of the word, and he warned them through the truth of the word. Elders here at Grace, I exhort you, to be on guard for the flock. To be alert and be on guard for the flock. Teach them and warn them of the consequences of sin. Teach them how to walk in victory, walk in the grace of God, to love well, to serve well. But also warn them when they walk down the road of sin away from God that the consequences can be severe. Not only for them, but for others. Well, we've seen... You can see now, well, this, is a hard, this, is, this, is a, this is a sobering message at Paul, but it's, it gives the, the, the church of Ephesus, but it's so needed. Now we've seen Paul's vindication, we've seen his exhortation. Let's now examine verses 32 through 35, where we'll see Paul's commendation, especially in verse 32. Look at verse 32 with me. He says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. 
The word commend there, he says, I commend you. It literally means to lay down beside or to place beside. That's what the word commend means. So Paul says this. First of all, I lay you beside God. I lay you down beside God. Paul had spent over three years ministering to to and training the elders at Ephesus as well as the others in the church there. He loved them and he thought he would never see them again. So he gives this. He says, I commend you to God. He knew they, they still needed to grow in certain areas. And he knew that there would be difficulty ahead for them from the inside of the church and from the outside of the church. Let me say this about Paul. He was a man. He was not perfect. So he was not without weakness. He was not, not without a little pride in his life. He most likely had thoughts like this. How will they get through those tough times without me? Who will help them grow through those areas of weakness? Who will protect them from the savage wolves? Instead of following or allowing his mind to stay in that kind of prideful and faithless place, he chose to do the only right thing. I commend you to God. I give you over to God. I lay, lay you down beside God. And he releases them in a sense. It's a beautiful picture. That he lays them down. It's also powerful and meant that there was no need to worry about their fate. They, they were in God's hands. He laid them down, listen to this, beside the Creator, the Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the, the, the Everlasting God, the God of all grace, the Comforter, the Healer. That's who He laid them down beside. This is the God that He left them with. Now, I must be honest with you. I've had some of those prideful and faithless thoughts as well as I think about leaving our body of believers behind. I've had thoughts like this. Who will handle this when I'm gone? Or who will handle that when I'm gone? Who will do this? Who will do that? How will this or that happen if I'm not here? I've had those thoughts. And let me confess to you, those are prideful and sinful and faithless thoughts. Who am I? God doesn't need me. He doesn't need me. So by God's grace, I have to do what Paul's done. I commend you to God. I lay you down to God. Which I've had to do weekly for 13 and a half years. And I've had to battle that. But it's not about me. It's not about whether I'm here or I'm not here. It's about God and I commend you to God. It's the only right course of action to take. Not only did Paul lay them down beside God, but he he did something else as well. Notice again in verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. He said, I lay you down beside the word of his grace. I leave you with the word of his grace. I love this. This is how Paul describes God's word, God's message to his people. The word of grace. He's not just just and righteous and holy and wrathful. Those are all true. But they all support this one huge thing about God, that God is gracious. You can't understand God's grace without those things, but it's all pointing to God's grace, that he would give us something we don't deserve. That's his love, that's salvation from sin. The main message of his word is that he rescues sinners, those who don't deserve rescuing, from what they deserve, his wrath, by pouring out his justice on his own perfect son. That's grace. Paul says, I lay 
you down beside the word of his grace, the word of God, which is sufficient. It has everything we need for life and godliness. You see, Paul was expendable. I'm expendable. God's word of grace is not expendable. God's word of grace is sufficient. I'm not. Paul's not. But God's word of grace is. So why does he lay him down beside the word of his grace? He gives two reasons here. Look, it's because it's able to build you up. Peter states his truth in 1 Peter 2.2. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. It strengthens us to live for the glory of God. Second reason he gives is because he's able to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The word of his grace brings assurance to those who are in Christ, convincing them that they are his and therefore they have an inheritance just like all those who have been sanctified, who've been made holy by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It gives us hope. It gives us assurance. Why too commend you to the word of his grace? I exhort you to lean hard on God and the word of his grace. And the only way to do that is to spend time in his word, to get to know him better. So you will cry out to him and lean hard on him. Now look at verses 33 through 35. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you and by working hard in the ma manner in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give, more blessed to give than to receive. Paul returns here to a little vindication, right? You, you know that I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't there and I wasn't charging. In fact, we saw that when Paul was there, he actually worked another job. And then after his job in the morning as a tent maker or working with leather, he would go teach for hours until he would eat and go to bed. So he took care of himself. Now, Paul will later say that there's a place. That he says, I can call upon you to, to take care of my needs because the scripture says that you should. Don't muzzle the ox um, while he's threshing, that, that you should take care of that, that, that he doesn't. So they, they won't be able to accuse him of doing it for money. So he gives a little more vindication here. I did it because I loved you. He wasn't in it for the money. And I can say, say to you truthfully, I'm not in it for the money. I never have been. Now, I will say this. Grace Bible Church is exemplary when it comes to taking care of their pastors. There are not many churches like this that allow our, our pastors here at the church, all right, the elders that have been, that excel, it says later in the scripture, teaching and preaching, that they can receive their means or their work, way of living through the preaching and teaching of the gospel. It's clear in scripture as well. We're not at want. I've got six kids, obviously, we're not at want, right? All right, they've all fed, been fed well. You can see that. And I'm super thankful for that. But I didn't do it for the money. If I wanted money, I would have left a long time ago. There's a lot of money to be had out there, isn't there? A lot of ways to do it. That's not why I'm in it. That's what Paul was in it. In it because we love the gospel. We love the Lord. We love his people. Well, we look at this passage and we say, well, so what? Well, all this stuff, all these characteristics, all these examples, all these exhortations um, that are given. Uh, what I want us to do is I want us to allow this passage to be used by God in all of our lives to make us the leaders he's called us to be. To all that we lead. To do it in love, in truth, with, with, with a clear conscience. To, to, to 
be on guard for ourselves, and that goes for all of us, to, to, to look at ourselves and, and look at the Word of God and, and, and ask God to show us where we need to grow and ask Him to help us grow. And then be on guard for others. We're all called to do that in the New Testament too. To guard each other, to love each other, to reprove each other, to admonish each other through the Word of God. And live our life, not just by the initial repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but listen, a life of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repent, repenting from those things in our life that, that, that just aren't after God. And instead, placing daily and moment by moment our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. May that be true of all of us. Now, I want you to look here at how Luke describes what happened after Paul's words here to the, the Ephesian elders. Verse 36, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, they would not see his face again, and they were accompanying him to the ship. So he prayed with them all. Now, I'm not, I'm not exhorting you all to kiss me repeatedly in my face, okay? Um, my wife can do that. Um, but I imagine there's, in the weeks ahead, there's some embracing and some tears that are going to happen from us and from, from all of us. And uh, um, but let me just say this. I've been saying a lot this morning. I know. I've probably gone longer than I normally than I should. I don't normally do. <laughs> um, but I love you. It's a privilege. It will always be a privilege to say that I got to be one of the elders and the teaching pastor at Grace Bible Church for 13 and a half years. I'll wear that with a sense of pride in a good way. Thanks for loving me and my family. Thanks for guarding us as we tried to guard you. Thanks for being patient. And thanks for all you're going to do. And thanks for your prayers. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the gospel of grace. It says Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. We thank you for doing a work in our hearts that we might turn from our sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray we would all minister out of love and truth and selflessness and a clear conscience, being on guard for ourselves and for the flock so that you might be glorified. Help us now as we sing from our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen.